God, we thank you again for your goodness to us this past week and this day in bringing us together that we might gather as your people on this day and this place to worship you. And we pray that you would continue to prepare our hearts for doing that in the hour to come. And we pray for this time that you be with us as we continue looking into this book, learning how we might hopefully become better, more profitable interpreters of your holy word, because we want to interpret it properly and aright. So be with us as we have this class. We pray you be with um, Lori as she teaches the, the little ones, that you be gracious to open their eyes, that they might see the truths of your word as well. And you might be pleased to bring them safely to yourself at young and tender ages. Again, thank you for this time. We ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this is class nine. Of, as we continue our study in how to interpret the Bible uh, based on a book by Robert Plummer, 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible. That is our main resource as well as, of course, the Holy Scripture, the Word of God. So for those who were here last week for Class 8, just a couple of review questions. Class 8 was General Guidelines for Interpreting Prophecy and Topology. So number one there, a blank is someone sent by God, and blank is the message from God. A prophet is someone sent by God, and, and the prophecy is the message of, from God. Amen. Number two, blank is a branch of biblical interpretation in which an element found in the Old Testament prefigures one found in the New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> Typology, yes, right. And um, in this biblical interpretation branch, the initial element is called a blank and the fulfillment is designated a blank. What was that? Type, what? And type and antitype. All right. Thank you, Wayne. Yes, the initial element is the type, and the fulfillment is the antitype. So let's move on to question 25, which is the first one we will consider today. Question 25, how do we interpret, or interpret apocalyptic literature? So in the way of overview, the English word apocalyptic comes from the Greek word meaning to reveal or to unveil. Apocalyptic literature is a genre of Jewish literature characterized by its use of symbolic imagery to reveal God's mysterious providential workings behind the scenes and his coming plans for the future. I want to read that again. Its use of symbolic imagery to reveal God's mysterious providential workings behind the scenes and his coming plans for the future. The only two canonical books with enough relevant apocalyptic content to be considered part of the apocalyptic genre are Daniel and Revelation. And as we observed in, when we were considering historical, historical narratives in class seven, these two books are not pure genre either. They have subgenres mixed in with the apocalyptic writings. For example, the first six chapters of Daniel consist of historic narratives about the faithful Jews in the Babylonian exile, while the rest records Daniel's apocalyptic visions. Similarly, in Revelation, Revelation 2, 1 through 3.22 is made up of letters to the churches, so the letters genre, while other parts, such as Revelation 1, 3, 
where we read, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written, for the time is near, seem to mirror, mirror Old Testament prophecy. <clears throat> so the author lists seven characteristics of apocalyptic literature, and we're going to go through these. Um, the scripture references that are bolded, we will read. The others that are um, unbolded are for further study. Uh, there wasn't time to go through all of them, so I had to cut back some. So the first, uh, first characteristic of apocalyptic literature is the expectation of the inbreaking of God into the present age to usher in a qualitatively different existence in the age to come. Let's look at Revelation 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be there, be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So we see in these verses, God will break into time and space and set things in motion and act in such a manner that the people of God will ultimately come to enjoy a quality of existence and life that far surpasses what we have experienced in our present lives here on this earth. So characteristic two, the use of an angelic mediator or mediators to communicate God's message to a chosen recipient or spokesman. Revelation 1, 1 and 2. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Is it on there? Yes. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Thank you. So God sent his angelic mediator and angel to communicate to John, his recipient or spokesman. The third characteristic, the journey of a chosen human recipient into the heavenly realms with ongoing interaction and communication with the angelic mediators. Let's look at Revelation 1, 4, 1 through, go ahead and read 1 through 4, Jacob instead of 1 through 3, okay. if you would. It cuts off at, it uh, stops at 4 for my online version. Okay, good. So, or 3, sorry. Yes. After, after <laughs> this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you that uh, what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had an appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. And that's where it stops for me. So go on and go through four, if you don't mind. I have a dumb Bible. <laughs> it doesn't go far enough. I oh, okay. Search it further. <laughs> Bible's not dumb. <laughs> my, my digital version of the Bible. Glad that's on the recording. <laughs> okay. Verse 4, after finding it. 
Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the throne, uh, thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns uh, on their heads. Okay. And then 5, 1 through 5 is also related to this. Uh, Revelation 5, 1 through 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Okay, thank you. So between these two passages, we see the heavenly realm open to John, and he can see the very throne room of God. And we see voices, we see a mighty angel, we see one of the 24 elders communicating with John. Okay, characteristic four, highly symbolic visions or dreams that describe both current hidden spiritual realities and future divine interventions. So you can imagine Daniel 7 is where we would go for some of these. Daniel 7, 1 through 8, and then 11 and 12. In the, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, David, Daniel saw a dream and visions in it of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour the much flesh. After this, I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what is, was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns." I considered the horns, and behold, there came up another, came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up, up by the, the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And verses 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that I that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, the dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. 
Okay, so definitely highly symbolic visions and dreams. And in the last couple of verses there, divine intervention of the destruction of the beast. <clears throat> Characteristic five, visions of final divine justice. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather for them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So thank you. We see obviously final um, judgments, divine final judgment. Number six, warnings of coming distresses and trials to be faced by the faithful. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. Uh-huh. And to the angel of the church in... Smyrna. Smyrna. Write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to, sh- to throw some of you into prison, that you may be t- tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Okay, so apocalyptic literature often contains um, these warnings. And in these verses, we hear of persecutions coming, we hear of suffering coming, we hear of uh, imprisonment and even potential death. And number seven, encouragements encouragements to the faithful to persevere in light of the true spiritual realities and coming divine interventions. Revelation 3, 7 through 13, Church of Philadelphia. And to the angel of the Church of Philadelphia, the words of the, of the Holy One, the true one, who, were the, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of, uh, those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you've kept my word about patient endurance, sorry, lost my line. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which will come down from my God out of heaven and 
my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you. And then 2220, you're able to get to that one. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. So along with the warnings of the persecutions and the trials to come, apocalyptic literature also gives encouragements to look forward to the reward, to those who overcome, to those who conquer, and of course the greatest promise of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in return. So a couple things as we go on in here, interpreting Daniel. So this is a pretty short section because the author really of the book devotes a single paragraph to uh, this topic and how to interpret Daniel, citing two overarching principles to keep in mind. And the first is that Daniel's visions in chapters 7 through 12 describe great shifts of international power in the coming centuries with special emphasis on battles in the second century BC. And number two, in chapter 12, one through four, his visions anticipate the climax of history and the resurrection of the dead. And other than this, he recommends the use of good study Bibles, reliable commentaries, (laughs) to help us interpret this book with its symbols and imagery. um, So the author devotes a little more time to interpreting Revelation, so we'll go on to that. When we come to interpret Revelation, we must strive to interpret the symbolic images according to the author's intent, and we've talked about this before in past classes. We should not adopt any interpretation that is not in harmony with the rest of the Bible, and we should proceed with great humility, recognizing that many, many godly men have very differing views. And we could apply these same three, obviously, to Daniel as well when we go to interpret the book of Daniel. There are several distinctive interpretive approaches to the book of Revelation, and Pastor Pete has described these as he preached through Mark chapter 13, these being the preterist view. According to this view, while portions of Revelation may have been forward-looking, when initially written, almost all events described in Revelation already have taken place, most in the first century or soon after. Thus, the preterists try much of the cataclysmic symbols in Revelation to the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. The the historicist view, historicists approach Revelation as a blueprint of the entire span of church history. Thus, portions of the book describe the past, while others look to the future. Third view is the idealist view. Idealists see Revelation as describing the spiritual realities that reoccur throughout history until the final consummation. And thus, in this view, in their mind, it would be erroneous to seek particular, rule, particular rulers or events that uniquely correspond with beasts or images and events in Revelation, as many events throughout history correspond to these same symbols. And fourthly, the futurist view. The futurist view sees the majority of Revelation as applying to future end-time events that occur directly prior to Christ's return. So I agree with um, Pastor 
what Pastor Pete presented in his sermons on Mark 13 and with the author of this book that a combination of three of the views is probably the best way to interpret these apocalyptic passages. And with regard to Revelation, we would understand uh, John's intent uh, something like this. Number one, viewing Revelation uh, chapters two and three, along with the preterists, as have been taken place in the first century or soon after with the destruction of the Jewish temple in AD 70. Viewing most of the rest of the book as an idealist, describing the spiritual realities that reoccur, reoccur throughout history <clears throat> until the final consummation of the age. And along with the futurists, some portions that await a one-time fulfillment at the end of time, such as Revelation chapter 20, verse 7 through the end of the book. And the author goes on that say, regardless of the approach, most interpreters should be able to agree with the following guidelines. Number one, Old Testament apocalyptic passages provide the most helpful background to understanding Revelation. In fact, of the 405 verses in Revelation, 278 um, contain allusions to the Old Testament, so well over 50%. The book of Revelation should be read from the perspective of the original audience. We've uh, said that a number of times. In accord with standards of apocalyptic literature, the symbolic images of Revelation should not be taken literally. For example, the author cites the walls of unimaginable thickness in Revelation 21, verses, verse 17, that they are 144 cubits, or 216 feet high or wide, whichever you interpret it. So if they're unimaginable, then the point is that the, the splendor of the city and also the security and the safety of those within it, not that the wall is this high or this thick, 216 feet thick. And number four, Revelation is intended to be is not intended to be read chronologically, and this is made evident for one example in the fact that the, Lord, the birth of the Lord Jesus doesn't appear in Revelation until chapter 12, so we're almost over halfway through the book, almost halfway through the book. So that's question number uh, 25. How do we interpret apocalyptic literature? So as we move on to the next one, I absolutely guarantee that what we're going to look at now will be the most amazing information that you will ever hear in your lifetime. <laughs> that may be a little bit of an exaggeration, but we're going to look at the next chapter has to deal with how to interpret exaggerated and hyperbolic language. So as an overview, exaggeration is found within various biblical genres. It's especially common in poetry and proverbs, as you can imagine. And as a master teacher, Jesus made extensive use of exaggeration for emphasis and to make his teaching memorable. And we know from recent sermons from the book of Mark, as our from Pastor Pete, that huge crowds hung on his every word. So he was a master teacher, and he used um, exaggeration, hyperbolic language, and I'll use those two terms basically interchangeably. So as with most biblical genres, there are interpretive dangers to avoid, though, and two common ones include, one, taking exaggerated language literally, and two, using the understanding that a text is hyperbolic to rationalize away any need for obedience. So let's look at an example from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Thank you. So Jesus is teaching on dealing with lust, correct? So obviously taking this literally will not solve the problem because if you cut off, if you pluck out your right eye, cut off your right hand, you still have your left eye, you still have your left hand that you can use in to sin. Alternatively, recognizing this is hyperbolic language and rationalizing that Jesus does not mean it to be taken literally, you could say, well, it has nothing that I need to pay attention to then. And so, you know, I can go on and live my life as usual. So that's another fallacy of uh, misunderstanding exaggeration. It does not, that does not deal with the problem of lust either. It misses the whole point that Jesus is making, that uh, radical self-denial is what is required to deal with the sin of lust. So the author states eight principles for recognizing exaggeration or hyperbole. And these come from uh, a book by Robert H. Stein, A Basic Guide to Interpreting the Bible, Playing by the Rules. So the first principle for recognizing exaggeration hyperbole is that if the text describes something that is literally impossible, yet the author seems to assume that the event is in fact a real possibility, this should clue us that hyperbole is being employed. So we could read Matthew nineteen twenty four. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So it is a physical impossibility for a camel to literally go, to go through a literal eye of a needle. So Jesus is using hyperbole in this example to emphasize how difficult it is for persons who are enamored with worldly comforts to be saved. Not that it's impossible, because he goes on in 26 of that chapter to say that all things are indeed possible with God. So this, but it's a use of hyperbole, because it's, in this case, something that is physically impossible, an eye going, the camel going through an eye of a needle. Another principle is the statement conflicts with what Jesus says elsewhere. So let's look at Matthew 23, 9, and then 19, uh, 19a. Matthew 23, 9, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who was in heaven. And 19... You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Uh, 19, 19A. Is that, was that 19A? Yeah, that's um, oh, 19. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, honor your father and mother. So from these two verses, we see that Jesus is not forbidding us to call our male parents fathers. (laughs) But from the context of the verses around the 23, he's utilizing hyperbole in denouncing the use of titles that exalt 
human figures, leaders, uh, to the detriment of the glory of God, bringing the glory of God down. So this statement is a use of hyperbole because what Jesus says elsewhere, if you took it literally, it would be in conflict with it. Number three, the statement conflicts with Jesus' actions elsewhere. So we saw about his words elsewhere. This, is, this would, if taken literally, would conflict with his actions elsewhere. Luke 14, 26, in conjunction with John 19, 26, 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and, and even his own life, uh, he cannot be my disciple. And then that in conjunction with John 19, 26 and 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Okay. Thank you. So obviously Jesus is not saying we are to hate our families in these verses because we see in John, the night, John 19 passage his loving, um, caring provision for his mother while he's on the cross. So this is an example of Jesus' use of hyperbole to emphasize that our devotion to him obviously should be far greater than our in any other human relationship. Uh, number four, the statement conflicts with the broader teaching of Scripture. Luke fourteen twenty. Oh, we looked at Luke fourteen twenty six, which dealt with um, if anyone follows me, they would need to hate their father, their mother, brother, sister. So let's just we've looked at that. Let's look at Deuteronomy five sixteen and First Timothy five four. So Deuteronomy Deuteronomy five sixteen is honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you. And 1 Timothy 5, 4. Megan hasn't pulled it up yet. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Okay. <clears throat> so obviously, again, Jesus is not saying we are to hate our families because we have this example from the Old Testament in Deuteronomy of the law, honor your father and mother, one of the Ten Commandments. And from the New Testament, um, in First Timothy, where you are to care for your parents, to give them some return. So Jesus is using hyperbole in this case as well. Number five, the statement is not always literally fulfilled in practice. Mark thirteen two. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone, everyone will be thrown down. Okay. So as Gary and Glenda can attest, if we were to go to the ruins of the ancient Jewish temple in Jerusalem today, we can still see a large section of stones stacked on top of each other as they were 2,000 years ago. So thus Jesus is using hyperbole, he's using exaggeration to make a point 
about a coming cataclysmic destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and of Jerusalem. Number six, the statement's literal fulfillment would not achieve the desired goal. So let's look at Matthew 5, 29 and 30 in conjunction with Mark 7, 20 to 23. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Mark seven twenty to 23. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Thank you. So from these two passages, we see that literally, again, cutting off appendages, appendages would not just have the desired effect of providing the ability to overcome lust because the desires come from within, from the heart, and the, that's what needs to be cleansed is the heart. So as mentioned earlier in the Matthew passage, Jesus is using hyperbole in calling for steps of radical self-denial rather than any kind of radical self-mutilation. Number seven, the statement uses a particular literary form prone to exaggeration. Some emotion-laden literary genres, such as proverbs, poetry, and prophecy, often make use of exaggerated language. So a couple examples would be 2 Samuel 1.23 and Song of Psalms. Verses 4, 1 through 3. 2 Samuel one twenty three, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Okay. Swifter than eagles, stronger than lions. And Song, Song of Solomon. For time's sake, we'll probably just not read this because... Everybody knows Song of Solomon. There's a lot of <laughs> exaggeration in this, talking about, you know, eyes being like this and cheeks like this and lips like this and everything. So, so that one's, that's pretty obvious, Song of Solomon. So another particular genre form that uses exaggeration is an idiom, and an idiom is an expression whose non-literal meanings have become customary in language. So we have modern-day idioms, don't we? Sayings like, hit the lights, break a leg. <laughs> so um, let's look at Matthew seventeen twenty. In Jesus' day, a common idiom spoke of moving mountains. So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So we see Jesus using this common hyperbolic idiom to convey to his listeners that through faith that they in God that they will be able to overcome seemingly impossible obstacles, not literally moving mountains from here to here. And number eight, uh, the statement uses all-inclusive universal language. And for this, we'll look at Colossians 1.23, a 
in conjunction with Romans uh, 15, 20, and 21. Colossians 1, 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Okay. In conjunction with Romans um, 15, 20, and 21. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Okay. So if the gospel in the first passage, the Colossians passage, had indeed been proclaimed in all creation and to every creature, um, why would Paul then in, Romans, in the Romans passage say that he made it his ambition to preach the gospel to those who had never heard it? So it's another example of the use of exaggeration here to point out that the gospel has and is spreading rapidly throughout the known world. So, I mean, we have looked at these um, principles. They're not um, all concrete principles, obviously. I mean, there are um, they're general, general principles, basically. So, for example, this one dealing with all-inclusive language, um, Jesus, in fact, all things that were created were created through Jesus. We all, in fact, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So in all of these areas, you know, as we study the Bible, in every area, we need to use you know, wisdom, we need to use the rest of Scripture, we need to use the tools that are available to help us to understand the intent of the author. So today we've looked at characteristics that can help us to recognize that we are in apocalyptic literature along with approaches and guidelines for interpreting that type of literature. We've also looked at interpretive dangers in dealing with exaggeration and hyperbolic literature and principles for recognizing and interpreting exaggeration or hyperbolic literature. So I pray that this information will profit us as we continue in our journey of being interpreters of God's word. We have a few minutes left if anybody would have any um, comments this morning. Nick, I don't know where, there's the mic. Personally for me, the last section we just went over is the most difficult. Um, I found that commentators don't speak to us. They, you know, the people will default to the literal. You know, I mean, even just general Christians will, you know, well, it's plain and clear. It means this, and you're like, yeah, do you realize this is idiomatic? And or as a pastor, you're trying to find out what does that mean, and you're this has got to be an idiom because this makes no sense. And you find out that commentators are silent on it, and you're scouring the commentaries to say. Is there anyone that's going to help me out with what kind of speech is going on here? And, yeah, I don't want to preach this wrong. Um, so it's this section right here, I think we need to be mindful and, and not be careful not to take things as, well, it says it plainly, it says so, therefore it has to be literal, and we just take it as it is, and just be willing. Maybe if we all like that, maybe come fellowship time, hey, do you see any type of uh, grammatical thing going on here, some type of uh, principle like we learned in an interpretation that, that I've overlooked or, or something. I think that's a, maybe a much more gracious way to 
to engage at least our brothers and sisters in Christ and, and possible interpretations. Does that help? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. thank you. So that makes a, a good, that brings up a good point. That, that brings up a good point as well. If we are getting ready to study a portion of scripture and we are looking for tools, you know, come to our pastors and ask which ones are good, good tools, which ones are good tom- commentaries to use, those that will not, will not steer you down the wrong, the wrong path. PJ? Oh, okay. Uh, Pete? Uh, two, yeah. <laughs> okay. yeah. <laughs> uh, to, to his point, too, you know, things even plucked, we've talked about context, things plucked out of context that seem straightforward, you know, mm-hmm. judge not. Are you judged? Yes, you be judged. Yeah, you know, right. that, that's a famous one to, to throw down when it has lots of context and, mm-hmm. and everything. But uh, the other thing I was going to mention, actually going back to the apocalyptic stuff, is that one thing to remember that, that is consistent with everything that you were saying, uh, Mark, is that you know, we use the word in our language, apocalypse, as a, like a specific period of time, or we'll refer to a movie as, you know, oh, yeah, it's like a post-apocalyptic, as if there was an apocalypse that happened, and then everything's like scorched earth that's on the other side of that. And so we kind of taught, we use the word apocalypse sometimes in our regular language as this like thing, this, this specific time, this thing, event that happened at this date and ended at this date. And um, to your point, you know, po- apocalypse is the whole idea of revealing and uncovering, not a block of time. So just something to keep in mind as we kind of use language and stuff. Thank you. Um, yeah, I was going to comment on each each question. Um, uh, as far as the um, exaggerated and and hyperbole, I um, I think with hyperbole I've, is where I've seen Christians tend to try to bend over backwards to explain or justify or create historical context to justify a statement. I think the camel and the eye of the needle is the most common one I think mm-hmm. of. People try to. Well, the eye of the needle is some arch, and it's really hard to get a camel through, and you're just kind of like, uh, why are you trying to justify this? It just seems like you're working too hard. And Whereas uh, an appropriate approach to Scripture, understanding the use of hyperbole, and even our how we use language ourselves that we don't even realize probably is helpful. And then I was also going to say, I think um, what's encouraging about the um, apocalyptic literature is I, I feel like these are areas of scripture that tend to get avoided. I was um, uh, in a group of people where a pastor was present from another church and was basically just referencing like, yeah, I don't think I'm ever going to preach Revelation. And I'm thinking, man, scripture is not to be avoided. And I, I understand there's so much scripture that if it's not the first on your list, it's, you may never get there. But um, I think I think we have a, a clear responsibility to do our best to understand, even when it's difficult, this apocalyptic literature. And uh, I guess I would encourage my fellow brothers and sisters to like try to dive in and do the best they can because we need to know all of Scripture. And I think that that statistic you gave about the percentage of revelation that is Old Testament um, is fantastic because it just, again, if we know the context of our of our Bibles, if we know our whole scriptures, um, how much better will we be able to approach these, you know, unapproachable portions of scripture? Right. Amen. Thank you. Carol and I have been listening through 
Alistair Begg's sermons on the, on the book of Daniel as we go back and forth to, to Flagstaff. And he's, he's mentioned a number of times, uh, I almost, I didn't know if I wanted to do this, but, you know, he, he does, he, obviously he says, I have to, it's the word of God. And he's, he's, he's heard pastors as well say, I'm never going to preach those books just because I don't feel adequate. But one thing he said in a recent sermon was, you know, God doesn't play hide and seek in his word, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so. Mark, maybe we close with Revelation 1-3, you can read it, because it really is the answer to that question. Okay. <laughs> Revelation 1 3. <laughs> yes, we read this earlier. Revelation 1 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Amen. So we are out of time. I'll go ahead and close our time in prayer. Again, our gracious God, we um, come before you recognizing that we are finite, our minds are finite, our thinking has been um, tainted and is still tainted to some extent by remaining sin and corruption, and so we don't see the things that you have put forth for us in your word clearly as if we were without remaining sin and corruption. So we pray that you would enable us in our journey as we strive to be the very best interpreters of what you have given us in your word as possible, that we might then go and live it for your glory and for our good. Thank you for this time. Bless our worship service to follow, especially the proclamation of the word. Continue to prepare us that we might worship you aright in spirit and in truth. Receive what you would have for us and apply it in our lives practically for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.